Hello, I'm Zoe Pollock, Artistic Director of Byron Writers Festival. You're listening to Love and Wonder, a series of collected conversations recorded live at the 2022 Byron Writers Festival, held on the lands of the Arakwal people of the Bundjalung Nation. This session, titled Female Desire, features authors Jessie Cole and Nikki Gemmel in conversation with Zachary Jane. Hi, hello, uh, Jingyuwala, thanks so much everybody for coming. My name is Zachary Jane and I'm the chair for this session. I'd like to start by acknowledging that we are here on the beautiful lands of the Arakwal people of the Bundjalung Nation and to pay our respects to the elders of this land, the elders of the past, the elders who share with us today of the present and for the elders of the future who we hope are coming forward to guide future generations. Also like to acknowledge that the First Nations of Australia are the oldest storytellers of this land. They're the first storytellers of this land that was never ceded and that as the oldest living culture in the world, First Nations Australians are the, one of the oldest living storytelling cultures in the whole world telling the first stories of hum- humanity. So, to get on with female desire, the topic of our panel today, of our conversation today, I'll be talking with Nikki Gemmel, who's sitting to my far right. Nikki is the best-selling author of 13 novels and four works of non-fiction, as well as a very well-known commentator with a weekly column in The Weekend Australian. I'm forgetting my words as we start. In France, she's noted as one of the 50 most important writers in the world, not least for her representation and illumination of female subjugation and desire. She joins us with her deeply personal memoir, Dissolve. Please welcome Nikki. And to my immediate right is Jessie Cole. Jessie Cole is the author of four books, two works of fiction and two memoir, all of which have received critical acclaim. It's her latest memoir we'll be discussing today, Desire, A Reckoning, an intimate and disarmingly honest story of relationships with lovers, family and the land. Jessie writes in her previous memoir that she was awfully terrifyingly seen. And she continues with her fearless writing in Desire, a memoir. Both books are composed brilliantly, constructed with lyrical language, carrying brutal emotional loads. So. (laughs) Nikki, you're smiling at being just being. I'm smiling because I'm nervous. being described as carrying a brutal emotional load. They are. They're incredibly beautifully written books where you, where you recognise yourself in them. I recognise myself in them. Every time I tell somebody that I'll be talking about, to both of you, they go, oh, my God, I read that book and I could see myself and I could see how women are manipulated. One interesting thing in talking about this, this panel before it happened was that desire, female desire many people automatically went to the default setting of lust and love and sex. Why, why do you think that is, Nikki? Well, I guess some people maybe want the dirty bits, but that's <laughs> certainly not what I'm about. In terms of desire for me, it's all about tenderness mm-hmm. and the audacity of tenderness and the courage of tenderness. You know, D.H. Lawrence wrote enormously about tenderness in Lady Chatterley's Lover. That's what that was all about too, that a woman who finally found a man who was tender. For, so for me, in terms of desire, you know, it doesn't happen very often yeah. in, my, in the breadth of my life. Um, but when it does, whoa. Um, but, you know, I've learned to discern, does that man have the capacity for tenderness and generosity, a generosity of spirit. Because I think, you know, you're on safe ground there as opposed to men who don't. And yet desire is so much more. So if perhaps, I don't want to be too generalist, but perhaps if we're talking about desire for men, it might be lust, but it also could be money and success. 
that's part of female desire too. And that's, that's not tender. That's got to be forceful. Yeah. Well, I guess for me all along, from the bride strip bear onwards, it's like I am still waiting for the husband strip bear. I'm still mm. waiting for that book. I want to read the other side of extreme honesty from a man in a marriage in terms of, um, you know, dissolve. This book, it, it, it talks a lot about a seminal relationship in my life, a writer. I would love to read his side of the story, because I think, you know, Gabriel Garcia Marquez said that everyone has three lives, a public life, which is us now, mm. a private life, which is maybe what you have with your partner, but then a secret life that no one else knows about. Mm. And, and that's what I'm interested in, in from the male perspective. That's what I try to get as close as possible to with my writing and bride and going down the anonymous path felt like the perfect solution to that. But that blew up in my face. Mm. Mm. <laughs> but it sold books, didn't it? <laughs> <laughs> I, I wasn't expecting it to. It was just a little project that I did. I'd, I just had my firstborn. Jessie was saying that she had her firstborn around the same time. You know, that little nest, that world that you don't want anything, anyone to intrude on. I just thought I'd... I will just write this quick little book, and it did take me only a couple of months, and I just wanted to write extremely honestly about sex within marriage and desire. And um, I was outed before the book had been edited, and that was a huge problem for me, because yep. suddenly I wanted to disguise myself and hide myself and be less honest, and it was a tussle with the editor, because she said, the strength of that book is in the honesty of it. And it was a great lesson to learn about writing with my columns and everything. I find that honesty connects. So that's what I've always tried to do to go, oh, God, am I really saying this? But I, I know vulnerability and honesty connects mm. as a writer. And I want to get back to two things later about okay. what you've just said, which is about <laughs> control, ideas okay. of control. Yep. Yeah? And ideas of how these books have exploded your lives have exploded oh, yes. into your lives. But okay. I'd like, Jessie, if you'd like, like to talk about perhaps how you see desire, whether desire for you is just about sexuality or whether there are other things to oh, do with yeah, desire. Oh, yeah, no, I see desire as about wanting and there's so many different things that we want in life. So I would describe it more, I mean, you know, there's a sexual element, but there's also like a hunger for touch, for connection, for nurturance, for, like intellectual fulfillment, like all of that sort of stuff I would consider to be desires that I have. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I, I think with my book, desire is, is really an umbrella title for a whole bunch of different desires that I have, even though it is following a sexual relationship as well. Yeah. yeah. Do you think that it's because of the culture that we live in and being brought up on fairy tales that female desire and female longing for love is a really well-worn pair of shoes that we can slip on to explore other types of desire. The desire for fame, for success as a writer. For both of you, a desire for family, desire for close friends, desire for material success. Do you think that, it, that the idea of, of the female as the love interest is a great way to carry many other desires. What do you think? Yeah, I'm not sure. I don't know. It, I, I wouldn't have thought so. I think a lot of the process of becoming an adult requires shaking off a lot of the tropes and um, fairy tale type assumptions that we've been fed since mm -hmm. infancy. So I would be aiming to work against a lot of that. Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. And I think both of your books do. Yes, yeah. I, I agree with you, Jessie. Um, for me, my book is about that exploration of young women. Apparently, young women, it's been reported, that we are at our most confident when we're nine years old. And then something happens to us. Our confidence leaks away. The world chips away at us. The world tells us we have to be something else, perhaps. I certainly felt, felt it that... I, I was being quietened and meekened. I was told to be nice, be nice. And it felt like I felt so wrong because I was raging inside and I had so many different 
things and passions and, and furies going on in there, but I wasn't allowed to articulate them. Edith Wharton talked about 120 years ago or so, she talked about a curtain of niceness that falls mm. over young women. And I certainly found it with my convent school, high school that I went to, that I was, we were being forced to conform into the way the world wanted us to be. And I was always like chafing at the bit because I just, I, I didn't want to be that, which made me feel so wrong. So this book is also about a young woman's journey of eventually going, oh, fuck that. Mm. But it took me a while, it took me a long, long time to see how destructive that on a female, on the female psyche, how narrow that definition is of what a perfect, good, successful girl or woman is, the fairy tale trope. Mm -hmm. mm. And so a lot of this is about writing back to try and understand how you got there from a position of greater power as a writer. How do you mean? Well, you're a successful writer. You've published so many books. You've published all around the world and highly acclaimed. You're writing retrospectively. Yeah. How do you imagine the Nikki in the book of uh, in the book dissolve? Do you have an affection for her, or are you trying to understand her? Oh God, that poor little thing. You know, she she was like this crumbling little bundle of self-doubt and self-hatred and thinking, I don't deserve it to be a writer. The story of it is I fell in love with an older writer. I had really, really wanted to be a writer myself. I was amazed at the male sense of confidence that, you know, this man, it was always assumed he would be a writer. And he just kind of... His stature, everything about him seemed to reflect that. Whereas for me, it was this tiny, tiny little flame inside me that I never dared really articulate to anyone. My, my dad was a coal miner who'd left school at 16. My mum was the same. I was the first in my, my family to finish school, let alone high school. And, um, you know, I remember when, when I said to dad, I want to write novels in my early 20s. He just went, oh, waste of time, that. That was the world mm. that I came from. So it, it's about self-determination, but also in terms of love and desire. Looking back at a men as a menopausal woman, it's like, my God, I was willing to throw everything away for love. It's like love, sex, passion, all of that. It was the coup de foudre. It was the truly, madly, deeply relationship. I was willing to completely subsume myself, throw away the writing dream I'd had since I was 10 because I didn't want that writer to be threatened by me in any way, to think, you know, oh, I might be louder or more articulate or I might, you know, kind of crowd in on his world. I, I was the muse. I hate, I hate you, that title of muse. You're saying you see little girls mm. with... Future Muse. Future Muse oh on yeah, their yeah. T-shirts and it just makes me want to... Oh, I was wondering... Sorry. Oh, no, no. I <laughs> sorry. totally agree. I'm yes, now. <laughs> totally agree, yeah. <laughs> I was wondering if you might read something for us. Oh, sure. <laughs> um, I'm all shaking because I get all... Oh. <laughs> I was so you should. And that passion is reflected on the page which is written in second person, so yes. it's so direct. Thank you. I love writing in the second person because I find it, 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 it conveys an immediacy but also a distance, that you're in the writer's head but um, they're looking at their life objectively in a way. I find it really ex effective in terms of a tool to write intimately yeah. about these kind of things. Oh, and also the book is um, kind of draws in a lot of relationships that writers have had. It looks at Charmian Cliff, George Johnson, Sylvia Plath Hughes, Doris Lessing, her lovers, um, and then all, also artists, Picasso, Dorama, various people like that. So there's a bit of a reference of other writers in, in this bit. He writes in a letter, finally. Oh, this is... Um, as you're breaking up. Oh, God, that's a spoiler alert, but it's kind of obvious. Um, <laughs> he writes in a letter, finally, that he feels like you help him to live. But does he help you live? Your role is prop, supporter, worshipper. Yet it persists, you jot down in your journal that night. This slight niggle of a feeling, now I am to be married, that I am somehow less. Just a woman, like other women, the little wife, just a body, 
a broodmare. And accompanying it all is this subtle loss of confidence, insidious as I lean on another, as I become dependent on another. W and you aren't alike as writers. You work differently, are motivated differently. You do it furtively in the cracks of your life. He writes out of expectation that his life will always be this, will always be accepted. You, on the other hand, feel like an imposter, the not quite deserving, not quite good enough. In his biography of Ted Hughes, Jonathan Bate describes the moment Seamus Heaney met Hughes. Quote, it was the assuredness of the sense of poetic vocation that most struck Seamus Heaney when he first met Ted Hughes. The certainty of the calling from a very early age. What woman has that assuredness, dares to have it, that audacious writerly confidence? What mainly worries me is a strengthening suspicion that in my character there is an antipathy between art and life, Philip Larkin wrote to a friend about his first love, Ruth Bowman. He said that once he gave in to another person, such as Ruth, Quote, there is a slackening and dulling of the peculiar artistic fibres, end quote. With W, you're too ready to give in and are starting to glean this uncomfortable truth. Love to hate is such a little leap because writing shelters you. You feel raw and exposed and unbalanced without it, trapped in a high wind of uncertainty. With W, maintaining the inner world is so hard, too hard at times, too many times. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. That's beautiful. Uh, I want to talk to you, Jesse, about the ideas that Nikki's just touched on and in that passage as well about passivity and incursion and how W was an incursion onto her creative mm. ideas and her creative inner life. To me, it seems with desire a reckoning that passivity and incursion is inherent within the character of Jessie in your book, which is you, in your retreating to the forest and, your, and in, in, in the sensual bits where you describe things being done to you, but you also describe things being done to your forest and whether you see an idea of passivity within the character of Jessie in the book, which mm. is you. Um, um, is that a question? I'm not sure if that's a question. Um, <laughs> I guess I would, I would also like to speak to Nikki's book, which was quite interesting for me because you were... You were talking so much about your creativity being inhibited mm. by mm. this relationship where my experience has been so opposite. Oh, like God, you're so lovely. All of my... Um, <laughs> all of, well, I have to just accept that I'm the creator and my person is my muse and I don't know why I've so strongly stepped into that, um, right. that position. But, you know, all of my books have come out. I was thinking... I used to say that all of my books besides staying have come out of unrequited love. But then I was thinking this morning that maybe even staying has because if, in a sense, a suicide is an unrequited love mm. scenario too. So um, I feel like the power... The, the sort of erotic drive of, um, of where does that wanting go? And for me, it has always gone, like, straight into the text. And so... Um, yeah, so I just feel quite... I've obviously been lucky. But I, I also think about my family dynamic because my father was an artist um, and he... I mean, he was a psychiatrist, but he was a, an artist on the side and he constantly drew us um, and constantly drew my mother. And for some reason, even though he was a man, it's like I've completely identified with that as my job as a person oh, is, like, to... to um, and I would also say that I feel that um, the representation of, of love is an act of love. Like, that's mm. what I've always thought. And so... Um, so it, say that to love somebody is a verb, it's not an emotion, it's a verb, it's a doing thing. Well, and it, and it always feels like an extension of that love to create something with it. Yeah. Um, and so all of my books have 
been like that, even if the object or the the person who I love does not appreciate it or does not does not is not involved real, in that creative process. Yeah. I got a real sense of you withdrawing into the forest. Yes. I think because the relationship that I was just I, I describe in Desire for me was quite risky, was a, a risky um, endeavour. It was someone who lived in another city and who was some, he I would describe him as quite passive. So in, in order for me to engage him in a relationship or in a, a, a sexual relationship required a great deal of motivation and activity from me, really. Um, but and for you- me to survive that, which is very hard on my nervous system to, to, to survive that degree of pursual from me, then I would need to retreat to the forest to regenerate. Yeah. Okay, that's, that's, a lovely, would, that's a lovely word to choose. Yeah. What was the, the, heart, the harshness on your nervous system? Can you talk a little bit oh, about okay. that? Oh, okay. So my, one of my problems that I'm exploring in this book is that for me I seem to have quite an allergic reaction to the, the possibility of sexual intimacy. Um, and so, like I'm talking physically. So um, the book is exploring trauma and how that plays out um, when you're attempt, like having complex trauma and how that plays out when you're attempting to start new relationships. And for me, that had a whole bunch of very strange physical symptoms. So that meant that my, I think my nervous system was basically in a state of really uh, uh, sort of overact or overactivation. Um, so for me to engage in an, and, and I would almost call it an attempted seduction that was extremely clumsy because my degree of practice is low. Um, <laughs> then I also had to sort of manage a system or a body that was not very cooperative and was probably, I would describe, semi-embarrassing, doing embarrassing things, a lot of twitching and a lot of... You actually had to seek some professional medical help about it. Yeah. yeah I, got that yes. I had to take a beta blocker on my first date to stop my body... Um, <laughs> cracking up and um yeah so so then because it was so hard to to sort of do that then I had to I mean I then I would enjoy going home and and my nervous system being able to settle at home and then settling for a couple of months and then having another go. Your description of what you put your body through is really quite terrifying why did you put yourself through that? Why well, did you have to pursue this man? I just think, um, I think, like, it's very rare for me. It, I mean, someone said to me yesterday that it's like my body is an incredible... Um, I don't need to wonder if I desire somebody because my body has this kind of, like, alarm system that comes up and starts to behave um, in all sorts of strange ways. But because that happens so rarely mm-hmm. in my life, I tend to want to explore it, I, you know. And so with this man, I just had all of those kind of physical responses and wanted, wanted to see what it would be about, yeah. And you also, but you also write about the, t- the terrible times we've gone through with the fire and the flood. How did you weave those into a love story? I guess I wasn't um, attempting really to write a love story. I think I was attempting to write... Um, an account, like an experiential account of what it feels like or what the experience of having very complex trauma and trying to engage in a sexual slash romantic relationship and then trying to contextualise that um, experience in an actual life. So, um, you know, my relationships with my children, my relationship with my mother, my relationship with my pets, my relationship with the home place. And in my book, my home place has always been such a a refuge. But um, at the same time, we are all experiencing the destabilisation of climate. So in the time period that the book was written, we had floods, we had fires. We all know we've all lived through it. And so my home place became less and less safe. So that was part... It wasn't that I was attempting to weave that in. It was more just that I was attempting to give a, a, an accurate depiction of what it felt like to be alive mm. for me. Do you think that there's a, a state of being as a writer, as an artist, as for both of you, that is like a piece of litmus paper, that is like the reflection of the world and what's happening and that comes with its own dangers, that if you're writing authentically and truly, you could put yourself in a very dangerous position... Do you think, Nikki? I feel like that almost every week <laughs> with my column. Yeah, um, yeah. I, I do, from, from the point of view that I have a silent address 
because I've been so threatened. And my agent, my literary agent in London, from someone up this way years and years ago, just after the Bride Strip Bear, sent me the most awful, awful letter. And my agent said, let's just keep that just in case, you know, oh. a th physically threatening letter. So I, I, I do feel over 20 years of writing, I'm constantly like, just like, okay, I've got to face the world, but mm. um, yeah. But I feel like that, that feeling of anxiety is outweighed by the connection that I have with readers, Lo mm -hmm. lovely readers. There are a lot of haters too, particularly from the Australian and the Australian readers who don't like me in their space. Right, okay. Because I don't ne necessarily why, write to why the politics. Don't they? Why don't well, they? I don't write to the politics of the paper. Yeah. And I'm an outspoken female right. and they might not necessarily like what I say. Yeah. Um, <laughs> thank <Yes>. you. <laughs> and I won't stop. <laughs> I have this constant argy-bargy with the Oz of, can you please take away the comments under the line? Mm. Because, that, you know, for 10 years, it's just been this kind of forum of misogyny, denigration, sneer, hate under my columns. So and everything that you're writing about in yeah. there, about trying to break free as a female writer, is still happening to you? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But still happening. Large. And always, oh, always happening. But it's like, they just want me to stop. And because of that, it's like, I will persist. <laughs> I will keep on going because we need these women's voices. There's a few of my lovely, lovely writer colleagues here in the audience. I did this wonderful writing workshop on Wednesday with this fabulous group of people about writing, honestly. And there was one particular piece from a woman who's older talking about the invisibility of being a grandmother and basically just the babysitter and that's all she's seen as. It was so ferociously honest mm. and it just connected. And it was like, I just, I've just sent it to my editor at the Weekend Australian magazine because I just said, this is amazing writing because it's audacious and it's brave and it's connecting and it, it talks about uncomfortable truths. Mm. And I think that's what writing should be. If it makes us uncomfortable, that's not necessarily a bad thing. What do you think about that, Jess? The idea of discomfort and the writer being litmus paper, being the mirror to the world, and that's a dangerous place to be in sometimes. Um. Yeah, I mean, I agree. Um, and Nikki's, like, stands here before us as sort of evidence. Mm. I, I don't think I've experienced that in any way to the same degree, but... No, yeah, because you no. write about very personal things. Yeah, but I, I have... Well, I'm protected, aren't I, by my yeah. uh, home place and my uh, yeah, yeah. anonymity. <laughs> no, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And very personal things. Your previous book was abstaining, was about the suicide of your father... And Nikki, you've also experienced the suicide of your mother. Yeah, we belong yeah, to yeah. this exclusive club that no one would want to be a part of. <laughs> yeah. How do you negotiate the, the, the pain of that in your book, Jessie? Do you think that that has influenced this book? Yeah, I think it, in a sense, staying, I wrote a long time ago and it sort of ended on quite an optimistic note in terms... I, the character, the me, you know, was about 27 or something and I hadn't really experienced um, new relationships post my dad's suicide. So I didn't know what trouble I was in for, really, when that book ended. Um, and so for me, the next place to obviously pick up was the ramifications of that kind of loss mm. on... Um, intimacy and so that's what this book's sort of exploring I mean it's it's a, it's a broad canvas but that that's part of what's going on so in your previous answer when you're talking about um, processing the trauma that's the trauma you're speaking about no I think that's part of my question in the book is that once you if if you have experienced an array of different types of trauma or different traumas how do you look back and decide which one is causing your trouble? Mm. So for me, I've experienced... I mean, I would describe a sort of um, generalised sexual sexualization in childhood and a gen generalised kind of 
um, being objectified and also um, being uh, inappropriately touched and all that sort of stuff that I feel like most little girls and most young girls will experience at some point even now, you know. And so that's kind of like we all have that. Mm. But that doesn't mean that it doesn't affect us just because it's normal. I'd be asking that question. I'm also talking about birth trauma, which for me was very extreme. And so even though birth is obviously not a sexual activity, it's affecting our bodies. And so when I'm bringing the, my body, which has experienced a kind of very violent birth into a sexual exchange later, is my body carrying those kind of um, experiences with it? And is that part of the reason why it's so reticent? Is that why my body's having so much trouble? I don't know. And then there's the suicide question, which I would describe as an attachment trauma, that you've, you've lost someone that you believed really loved you and they've left you. So, like, am I bringing an attachment? Like, there's so many. And I think it's a, it's a kind of easy answer that a lot of writers would fall into. And also, it's easier to do this in fiction where you choose a trauma and that's your backstory, and that's why you've ended up here in real life. But in real, well, in, in a story, but in real life, you're here, you're experiencing a whole lot of um, confusing, potentially trauma-related symptoms. But when you look back, it's quite an array of things to choose from. How do you choose? And in a <laughs> sense, you're just making a choice. Like, you're, you're sort of making a guess, a good guess, um, for, for me, for someone like me. But I... I yeah, so the book is exploring that and I think I'm trying in the book to say maybe you have to accept that you can't know. Like it's not a journey to be like I finally discovered I'm like this because this happened then. The book is much more like laying out an array of potential reasons why I could be struggling so hard with this now and it's more like it's up to the reader to try and decipher, just like I'm trying to decipher which one might be really causing the problem. Mm. Did you if, re achieve if, any element of catharsis, though, from writing the book, do you think? I don't really feel... I think if you do experience catharsis, it's like a very passing feeling. Mm -hmm. But I also feel, for me, writing is much more about clarity, creation of clarity, which I suppose creates a bit of a catharsis. But I don't really feel that my writing life has involved that's not been a really big part of it yeah 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 um, I was wondering if you'd like to read something from the book now yes. um so I was going to read like my whole book isn't like this but I was going to read a kind of more sweet section <laughs> <laughs> um on one of these early visits when I was unsure at the outset whether he would return my desire we went swimming at the beach I stripped down to my swimmers and he to his, and we stood on the edge of the water, exposed, the wind wafting about us. This beach was his home territory, but I'd always been enlivened by the sea. The water was cool and we entered it tentatively, but was soon submerged. I was watching him out of the corner of my eye. This is us, out in the world, I thought. Two people, previously lovers, going for a swim. I was filled with a strange mix of apprehension and hope would be lovers again. The water surged around us and I was swept up against him, the skin of my ass brushing his thighs. My whole body erupted in a shiver of goosebumps. Lightly, he laid his hands on my hips under the water and gently lifted me out of the way. It was a rejection of sorts, but something about it made me smile. He touched me as though he believed I was a grenade that might explode in his hands. As though my desire was so tangible, he had to use all his diffusing skills. I glanced at him. Here I am in the bright sunlight, covered in goosebumps, wet and hot inside. What are you going to do? He turned then and began to swim toward the horizon, away from me, and I felt like throwing my head back and laughing. You can run, I thought, but it won't work. It's coming for you, the fragility of desire, of love, how terribly vulnerable it makes us. It wasn't long before he turned around and swam back. I said nothing, he said nothing. We bobbed together in the water. And I knew in that moment that he would press his supple fingers against my skin again soon. He would open me up, touch me with his tongue, find all my secret places and say my name like an incantation. And I knew it from that one brush against him in the wave, skin to skin. 
I don't want to presume, he said that evening, like he had each time. I climbed onto his lap, shuddery with the knowledge of the pleasure to come. He was older, forlorn. He was no longer the beauty he had once been, but my body swelled with want. It was a mystery, yes, but it was a good one. <laughs> so the idea of female desire, we're used to men desiring us. That's a characteristic of our culture, I would say, of most cultures. We're used to the male desire. Do you think your older man was confronted by female desire? Do you think he couldn't manage it? Um, I think he was conflicted, probably confronted. But I do think that that was part of the joy of writing this book, is to actually claim... I, I'm really interested in, um, not, in women not... I think we're all trained from when we're so little to experience ourselves as a being but then experience ourselves simultaneously at all times as someone being viewed and someone being either considered desirable or undesirable and that's just like a constant in our lives. And I really, I mean, I push against that because I live in the forest and I don't have to deal with the male gaze or the cultural gaze um, in that way. So it's, it's, I think I've been really lucky that I've been allowed to kind of develop a much more internal sense of myself. But I really wanted to, to think about desire that way instead of it always being about, am I desirable? Um, do I, do I, am I acceptable? Like all of the, you talk about this in your book really beautifully as well. I, wa I wanted to give an experiential sort of depiction of what it feels like to be experiencing desire rather than being desired. So in my book, mm -hmm. it's not really that relevant what the old man thinks or what he, what's going on for him. In fact, that's not really even explored. It's exploring um, an internal, you know, um, yeah, an, an internal and not, not sort of viewed experience of being in a state of desire. Mm, and you yeah. were writing it as it was happening. It's written yeah. in past tense, but it was yeah. pretty much written as it happened. Is that right? Well, yeah. I mean, I wouldn't say something would would have it, an incident and I would run to my room and, and <laughs> write it down. Well, not, not like that. But I just mean, when I say in real time, it was written without hindsight wisdom, yeah. which I think is a kind of... It, I describe it as a high-wire act, but it is a particular way to write because you don't know how things are going to go and you don't know... Like, you haven't gotten to a certain point in the narrative of your life and made a decision about what happened and then, like, wisely, like, written your narrative based on your, your the wisdom you've earned. So to write um, in real time, which is probably... Like, I'm probably writing a month after mm. the events or so, but I, it's not a hindsight... Yeah, I think it's a book without hindsight wisdom. And when did you realise that it was a book? It was always sort of a book, but I didn't realise... I, I, I thought that I was going to write a book of essays about um, attachment mm. and desire and problems around that sort of thing. And I thought it was going to be a, a detached kind of um, academic... Not academic, but researched and non-personal kind of book of essays. And so what happened was I was sort of... I did a lot of research. I did a lot of... Um, background work and that in the meantime I was always writing these incredibly personal little pieces that I just assumed like I, I assumed that I was writing those for sort of personal reasons and that I would eventually write through them and get to the real work mm. um, but what happened was I sort of realized that the the that they were the real work and I realised that any of the sort of more detached or more um, research-based stuff that I tried to write was never going to have any of the kind of liveliness or truth of, the, of these private kind of um, stories. So I sort of... It was a kind of horrible... Um, a, a horrible realisation, in a sense, that I was, that I was on that... that, that horrible realisation because it exposed you? Yeah, and because... I suppose when you write that way at first, you're writing in private. So, I mean, I think I always write that way. I always write in private. I always assume that my writing will not be read because um, you don't... It doesn't have to be. You, you know, you make that choice. And so there's always this really kind of, kind of wild move in your mind from, you know, this is in my private folder to this is in my public folder. It doesn't feel very good. What do you reckon about that, Nikki? What do you think about that? So you're writing in second 
person to yourself. And as I said earlier uh, in our other panel, I got the feeling as I read that I was sitting quietly on the edge of a conversation between Nikki now and Nikki then. Were you always going to tell this story? Never. No. Never. No, th this was a story that was kind of locked inside me because I was traumatised for years by it and embarrassed and humiliated and ashamed. I felt mm. like it was a real failure. Why? Why? A, a failure um, to be lovable, a failure to understand what had really gone on. We were going to get married and, you know, the, the chapel in my old school was booked and everything was arranged and then he took me out for dinner um, a couple of weeks beforehand and just said, I can't do it, and, and broke me mm. almost to the point of suicide myself. So and I was never going to talk about it. It was humiliating and mortifying. It was something about the Me Too movement that galvanised me and I think also having a teenage daughter and just seeing these beautiful, strong, sparky, articulate, confident young women around me, whether they were babysitters or whatever, and but sensing that fragility and that vulnerability and that loss of confidence within them as well, I wrote this in a way for them as mm. like a handbook and mm. to make them think, you're not alone, <laughs> you know. And also you are confident. the writer. That's what I took away from it. Mm. <laughs> like... You've you're you the writer. You become woman. that. You, yeah. you, you don't yeah. have to be the yeah. muse. Yeah, well, exactly. You're not the muse, you're yeah. the writer. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, this yeah. was a process of this man, by um, rejecting me brutally, kind of gave me the gift of my life, yeah. in yeah. a way, because he set me on the path of, no, I don't want to be a muse. No, I don't want to subsume myself to a male. No, I don't want to quieten my voice because the world is telling me to do that. No, I, I want to be that writer. So, yes, he, mm. he gave me the biggest gift, it, it propelled me on. And I was going to ask both of you that question is, these document relationships that fail, but can you in retrospect see that they've given you something? Jesse, did your relationship with the older man give you something? Oh, yeah, I always, I don't even see it as a failure. I see it as such a success because it was so hard for me to do. Yeah. Um, so hard for me to, um, to prioritise my desires, to, um, to overcome his passivity, to the whole relationship required such a, a sort of active state from me rather than a passive state. And so... For me, that was like, in a sense, that's like my Everest, you know, to be able to 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 do that. So, yeah, the I think it's a crazy idea that relationships are defined by how they end. Anyway, like a, a relationship doesn't have to be a failure just because it ended. Um, I definitely see it in completely different yeah, terms. Mine yeah. wasn't love. I realise now. You know, I thought this man was the love of my life, and I was willing to throw away everything for him. It was infatuate infatuation. It wasn't until years later that I came around to a previous boyfriend and before this guy and ended up with him and learnt what real love is, the quietness of real love, you know. This, this but maybe you needed the contrast. Yeah, yeah. The love that I had with this dude was kind of loud and destabilising and a big slap-bang, passionate kind of thing. But it... it wasn't strengthening and it wasn't generous in any way. Mm -hmm. But it took me years, decades to realise that, how destructive it was. <laughs> Do you think that there's any correlation between ideas of capitalism and the end product with ideas of uh, what the female has to be? The female has to provide an end product, has to provide the children, has to be the wife. And that if we can't put the female into that end product, then the relationships failed. Do you think there's anything about the product in, in uh, the idea of womanhood and desire? Well, sometimes I think about, um, and it's not just me, I've read uh, other people talking about it too, but the way that our sexual exchange in modern, in modern you know, contemporary society has a feeling of uh, extractiveness, like so that you're that you're both getting an orgasm from each other. That there's some sort of like um, that something's being extracted rather than sort of a feeling of um, of communion or connection. So I mean, I, I am interested in that. If if we if that's what we're all in in pro, you know our culture our whole culture is built on this process of extraction then mm. it's like the sexual exchange maybe becomes like that too and 
Do you think, either of you, that there's enough platforms out there for a, a frank discussion about female desire and female sexuality out in the, in the media? Nikki, you're a media personality. I, I, I think more and more so. Yep. You know, I, I love all these podcasts and I, 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 I feel excited. Um, I, but I think for, in terms of what is out there, but I think for honesty is always hard and will always be hard to speak truthfully um, because it requires courage and you get attacked for it. So, um, but I love these brazen young chicks with their mm. words. It's like, oh, just bring it on, those yeah. fresh new voices. Yeah. And you talked earlier, right at the very beginning of our conversation, about how the bride strip bear exploded into your life. Has this one had the same effect? Uh, yeah, the, the, blow, the bride strip bear was kind of shattering and explosive. Um, the day before it was published, uh, I, I vomited into a pillow as I, I was being driven back home from a holiday with my then husband and um, uh, that was the beginning of migraine headaches for me. I've had them ever since. So I associate bride with stress. For me, um, this one is balming and healing and it took... It felt so strong to write. Like my previous novel, my, my last novel, The Ripping Tree, took 10 years of slog to get it right. This one came very, very quickly within like five or six months because it felt so sure what I wanted to say. Um, it's like you'd been thinking about it a really long time. Yeah, yeah. So it just came. Yeah. There's a beautiful a bit um, when you're... It's, it's a bit of a road trip story, isn't it? At dissolve, it's um, yeah. you and W go for a trip. How important was it, do you think, in that relationship that you were outside your normal confines, that you weren't in familiar places? Oh, it was damn sexy because you know we, you know, getting back to you were talking earlier about the whole fairy tale thing. Um, I'd bought a, a Holden Ute from my dad for ten thousand dollars, and it was a manual, and I'd only ever driven automatic, so I didn't know how to ride it, drive it. And I had to drive it from Newcastle through to Alice Springs, where I was living. And I had to find someone to teach me how to drive along the way. And we were camping um, in riverbeds and that mm. kind of thing along the way. And it was, um, you know, this guy was suggested to me who I'd never met. So the whole circumstances of our meeting felt voluptuous and like a movie. And getting back to that, what I was saying earlier about feeling wrong for so many of my teenage years, my young adult years, I didn't feel like I fit. I fitted into the world. I looked at all my schoolmates around me from the convent school who were all in their mid-twenties starting to settle, get married, even have babies, that kind of thing. And I just felt unlovable and I can't do this. I don't know if it was a um, because of the catastrophic and very bitter divorce of my parents. I still feel stained by that. That happened when I was 10. And I feel broken still to this day by that awful, awful, bitter situation where I had to testify back in those days in the family court. And the judge split our family. My two brothers went with my dad. I went with my mum. It was so traumatic at the time that when this happened to me, this man took me out to a restaurant and said, I can't go through with this wedding. It was like, well, that's my fault, isn't it? I've done something wrong, I am wrong, I can't do this, I don't know how to do this. I remember shortly afterwards at the time with a girlfriend who'd also had a catastrophic childhood divorce, she said, Nikki, let's make a pact through our 30s if we don't have anyone, we'll just, um, sperm donors, big share house, we'll just raise our kids together. And it's still like, a great yes, idea. We'll yeah. do that, yeah. Yeah, but we both felt broken in a way, so it felt almost inevitable in a way that this was going to happen. Yeah. Did you ever hear your mother's voice? Was it ever a reaction that the, the relationship with the with you know the, the Uber fairy tale with W? Mm -hmm. Was that ever a reaction to your mother? To her going, don't trust a man, get get property, do look after yourself, never yeah, rely on a yeah, fellow. Yeah, 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 because I was raised by a single mum and and you know she was very much like you can never rely on a man, you have to have your own source of income to be independent and powerful and empowered. And then she didn't like W right mm. from the start mm. because 
But in a way, I was as the child always seems to do with the adult. They rebel against the adult. So he was the impoverished writer in the garret. So I was straight in there. Um, Bad boy of literature. Yeah, but it was like he was diminishing and reducing me and my best mate could see it. She'd say, Nikki, you're getting so skinny. It's like he's disappearing you. Yeah. And, you know, at the time I was like, oh, I was just jealous. I was <laughs> just jealous. But, but she was so right and she was so perceptive. She saw it. What do you feel the older man did for you? Did he reduce you? Did it no. fracture you? Tell us about... No, I mean, I don't, I don't think so. I feel... I've, I think that he was, um, you know, tender and also not... Just the, I almost wonder if it was an experiment with passivity because he was so not... Um, he was so unaggressive in his sexual approach that it, it just gave me a lot of room to have my own desires and to explore them without being constantly desired. Um, and so, yeah, no, for me it was like a really explorative space that felt quite... Um, that felt quite nourishing. You know, the ending mm. was, not, was not... Um, and why and not? Why was why was the nothing? ending not? Oh, I just felt like he did that thing that uh, you know where his way of ending it was to say um, there was never anything of depth between us. So why would this be a problem? Which I just felt was um, a, like a, a astoundingly unfair <laughs> representation yeah, yeah. of what had yeah. happened. So um, that was really painful. Like you know, but that didn't, that doesn't really erase the the benefits of the relationship for me. Mm. Um, regarding that, do you think desire then got in the way? Because if so, in the narrative of the book, if you had that, how many years was the relationship? Four. Four years. If you had a four year relationship with just a friend, with a girlfriend, and you were going and staying at their house and being physically intimate, not in a sexual way, but just and hanging out with them and talking to them on the phone the all, t all the time, and then they just cut it one day, that would be very, very wrong. How can he justify... Do you think he used desire to justify ending it because it was sexual? That we have a different understanding of how it's OK to end something if oh, it's sexual? I just think that we... Yeah, that's true. But we also... Me and him just had a completely, I think, different narrative about what the relationship was, but we didn't realise how out of sync those two narratives were, or I didn't, I didn't realise until the mm. very end. But and that was the same with me. Yeah. Yeah. Totally yeah. Narratives. yeah. And I think that's fair. Like, he's allowed his own narrative. But the, the point for me is um, I get to write about mine. <laughs> <laughs> I hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. This session was recorded live as part of Byron Writers Festival 2022. You can find other recorded talks and discussions from the festival on our website, byronwritersfestival.com forward slash digital.